First-time CEOs have to get their arms around the basics of each function. If you don't know enough about that function, how that function fits with all the other function, you can wake up and be in, in terrible shape one day without seeing that it's coming. Welcome back to Speaker Series Rewind, a podcast by High Alpha. I'm your host, Drew Beachler. On this show, we revisit discussions from High Alpha's Speaker Series, a monthly event series featuring industry leaders, successful entrepreneurs, and investors. For our very first season, we'll be joined by founders and CEOs across the country running everything from B2B software companies to international airports. Today's episode is with Matt Blumberg, the CEO and co-founder of Bolster, a High Alpha Studio portfolio company. This is one of our most recent speaker series events, and it was recorded in July of 2021, just after the launch of Matt's newest book, Startup CXO. And this book is an incredible book. It's really meant to be a field guide for startups and specifically leaders and CEOs and how they can scale up their company's critical functions and teams across the organization. Our managing partner, Scott Dorsey, sat down with Matt for a conversation about his entrepreneurial journey, his vision for the future of work, and how Bolster is really powering a lot of that in his new book, Startup CXO. Matt is just an incredible leader, an entrepreneur, and one of my favorite people to work with and really get to learn from. And this episode is just full of lessons from Matt's stories of building and scaling and selling return path over a 10 plus year journey, what the role of a CEO should be as a functional supervisor and how that role expands and changes over time as the business grows and just a ton of really candid and tactical advice even on how to effectively manage and utilize your board members, how to effectively interview independent candidates for your board members and your board meetings. And it's truly one of my favorite episodes and one of my favorite interviews we've done in quite a long time on our speaker series. So I'm really excited to share this with all of you. So let's dive into the episode with Scott and Matt. Welcome to our monthly speaker series. This is speaker series number 55. And uh, we've got a real real treat today with, with my friend and, uh, and colleague, Matt Blumberg. I want to thank our sponsors, uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Ice Miller, who make, make this program accessible and, and make it all happen. We're grateful for their partnership. We've got an interesting mix of attendees today, a good number coming from the Bolster Network, uh, Matt's company, and then a good number from the High Alpha Network. So for any of, any of you who are not familiar with High Alpha, we are a venture studio focused on B2B SaaS. And we've got a really interesting model. We're one part startup studio where we start new companies like we did with Matt, and then one part venture firm through High Alpha Capital. And, and the two together, we get the incredible opportunity to work with uh, entrepreneurs uh, all over the world and help build uh, next generation uh, B2B SaaS and, and cloud companies. So uh, real delighted to be with all of you today. Matt, thank you for joining us. Great to have you on the program. Good to see you, Scott. Delighted to share a little bit of Matt's background. Uh, as I mentioned, Matt is a co-founder and CEO of Bolster that you'll learn uh, more about today. We've been, I've been friends for a long time. I've, I've looked up to Matt. I, I really admire him as a leader. And during my journey of building Exact Target and being a first-time CEO, and, uh, and Matt building his company, Return Path, we, uh, we were great partners and learned a lot from one another. Matt's got an incredible background in large part to uh, growing and scaling a company called Return Path that you'll hear more about. Matt's a graduate of Princeton. He's also founder and chairman of a nonprofit called pathforward.org that is a nonprofit with a really neat mission to empower people to return back to work after they've been away from work caring for loved ones. And then, uh, and then most recently, during the early days of COVID, 
This is a little interesting tidbit. Matt was tapped on the shoulder by the governor of Colorado, Jared Polis, to be the founding leader for the state of Colorado's innovation response team. So uh, leadership comes in many different forms. And, and then Matt's also written two great books that we'll talk about, Startup CEO and Startup CXO. So with all that, one more warm welcome. Matt, thanks again for joining us. Great. Uh, happy to be here, Scott. So let's get started. I think, I think the audience would love just to hear a little more about you and your background. Take us all the way back. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? And uh, what were those early steps that kind of led you down a path toward leadership and technology? Yeah, I grew up in Southern California and uh, San Diego in particular, which is uh, one of my favorite places in the world. And I've been in the workforce since 1992 and working in internet since 94, 95, hmm. so very early days. So my first job out of college was management consulting. My second job was at a venture capital firm. Now uh, the firm is a, a large private equity firm, General Atlantic Partners. But when I was there, it was uh, early stage uh, venture work in software. So I was there in 94, 95. Uh, Netscape had just gone public. There was all this, hey, what's this internet thing? The firm had invested in E-Trade and Priceline. And I was a very junior person there, but I've had this early taste and early look at the internet. And I left there in early 1995 and went to go work at a company called MoviePhone. And I was there through the sale of that business in 99 and then started return path in 99. But so internet 1.0, kind of 1995, 6, 7, 8, 9, I was working at this company, MoviePhone. So MoviePhone was a small cap public company in New York City that was um, essentially an internet business without the internet. So the, the business was started in the late 80s by some, some great visionary entrepreneurs who, with whom I'm still friends today, who created an interactive telephone service to aggregate movie show times, which had never been done before. Movie show times were a function of newspapers and individual theater phone lines. They were aggregating them, keying them into a central database and had built a touchtone response system mm -hmm. for people to call a central number in a city. It was a branded number like 777 film. You heard an ad before you could use the service. So it was very much like a website. And, and it was e-commerce over a touchtone phone. You could buy a movie ticket. This very early thing in the late 80s, early 90s. And I was hired there. My first job, I was hired as like the CEO's special assistant or something. And my first job was to figure out if we should build a website. So that dates uh, me quite a bit. And it was actually a non-obvious decision in early 1995, because what was going on then, all the dial-up services, like the original America Online and Prodigy and CopyServe and Delphi and Genie, all those dial-up services had you know, their own users and they were all coming to companies like MoviePhone and in fact, MoviePhone with an offer, which was build a visual version of MoviePhone in our environment, only for our users in our proprietary markup language. And we'll give you a million dollars. We'll give you $2 million, but you'll only be serving our users. So literally my first job there was figure out which one to go with, or should we build um, a website? And browser technology was terrible. I mean, browsers only barely existed they could barely handle graphics. They certainly couldn't handle like movie trailers and things that we needed them to do. But we did in the end decide to, to build a website. And that was just a really interesting ride for, for those five years to be running at what at the time was like a top 50 web property and figuring out how to be an entrepreneur and how to build a business. But it was in the context of, of, of another business. Anyway, and then as I started Return Path in 99 and scaled that in the email analytics and services and certification space for almost 20 years until we sold it in 2019 and then started Bolster. That's awesome, Matt. As you look back on uh, 
your career, and maybe in particular with the return path, what are you most proud of? Certainly getting the website question right at Movie Phone was a, was a good call. And I think with Return Path, there, there are definitely a few things I can point to. I'm super proud of the of the business that we built. I'm really proud of the way we built it. I think we built a, a terrific brand in the email space. We built a, a wonderful culture. And it wasn't just me. It was hundreds and hundreds of other people. But I'm super proud of a lot of the awards that we won at Return Path for being a great place to work. I think also, if I reflect on the, the 20 years of movie phone, navigating the dot-com bust in 2000, 2001, as you did, navigating 9-11 with the company headquartered in New York City, navigating the 2008, 2009 financial meltdown. It felt like a lot of things to, to navigate. And each time our team was able to come out the other side of them stronger than on the way in. One, one aspect, Matt, of watching you build a return path as a partner is I was really impressed with how quickly and aggressively you moved into international markets. You really became a global company, a multinational company. And I think many of our early stage companies wrestle with when to just stay focused on the US market versus actually start hiring individuals in different parts of the world. Even if you start in English speaking countries like the UK and Australia, I'd love for you to share maybe a little of that journey and thought process and some lessons learned. Yeah, absolutely. I can give some credit to one of our independent directors at Return Path, this guy named Scott Weiss, who was a really successful uh, entrepreneur. He had built, he was on the management team at Hotmail that sold it to Microsoft. And then he built um, a company called Ironport Systems, which uh, he sold to Cisco many years later. And Scott was really the one that pushed us uh, pretty heavily on the international front to do that early. And his, his logic was, look, email is a very global business. You probably already are international. And the, the, the typical way that American companies expand overseas is they go buy a competitor that's like a local small in-market competitor or distributor or something. I think, if I remember correctly, I think that's how you guys got into the UK. We did, we did. Key, what was it called? Key something or other? And there was no one for us to go buy. And what Scott said very memorably at a board meeting was, don't wait until there's someone for you to go, like, just go start figuring it out. And we had a, we had a rule of thumb with International was, which was we were going to service the business from the U.S., until there was enough business to warrant putting a person there. That's how we got into the three different major markets in Europe. It's how we got into Australia and Canada and Brazil as well. But yeah, I think we had the international footprint with very small, like one, two person offices as early as we possibly could to build that brand with clients in market. And then once we were there, we were able to serve surrounding areas and expand. And I think by the end, our business was about 35 to 40% non-US. And we had some pretty sizable offices. We had 50, 50, 60 people in the UK and 20 or 30 in Brazil and a good footprint in other places too. Yeah, that's incredible, Matt. You, I always felt like you were a couple of steps ahead of us on, on international expansion. And when we were building Exact Target, we were, we were seven or eight years in and 95% plus you know, of our revenue was from the US. And, and when we started to open up markets outside the US, we saw an extra boost, extra acceleration in the business. And we did, we started testing the waters with resellers in the UK and Australia. And when they started growing and doing well, we acquired them and they became part of the team. And then we expanded throughout Europe and then, and then we followed you into Brazil. And that was really exciting. And also that was probably the moment where we really felt like a true global company where we had an office full of employees who didn't speak English and all of a sudden having to translate everything into Portuguese. And, you know, that was exciting and also a whole lot of work. That was a real different kind of bar to get over. Yeah, for sure. And much appreciated by people 
who don't speak English as their primary language. Oh yeah, exactly, exactly. So uh, that's uh, that's all part of the evolution, all part of all part of the growth. And and for us, it was a mix of supporting our U.S. based customers who were expanding around the world with us, and and then opening new markets. So that's that's pretty neat. You know, along the way, Matt, you wrote your first book, uh, Startup CEO, that that I think is is amazing. And I, I had a good time uh, rereading sections of it in preparation for our conversation today. And you wrote me the book in November of 2013, from one startup CEO to another, which is pretty neat. And for those of you who have not read the book, I highly recommend it. It is, it's an awesome read. And I find it still as relevant in 2021 as it was a decade ago. One of my favorite chapters, Matt, that I'd love for you to expand on is chapter eight, uh, CEO is functional supervisor. And, And for our audience, this really captures the essence of the CEO as a general manager. And across our portfolio, we have many second and third time founder CEOs. We also have many first time founder CEOs. And that transition from managing one department, one domain, one function that you likely came from, perhaps you came up through sales or marketing or software development. When you're managing that team, you likely know more than the team that you're managing about the function because maybe you have more years of experience. You've come up the curve. Your, your career's only been within that function. Well, all of a sudden, when you become a, a first-time CEO, you're managing all functions of the business, many of which you have very little knowledge about. And I'd love for you to maybe expand on that theme, that transition that leaders go through and any advice you might have. Yeah, the backstory for that book, Startup CEO, was um, very much that I, I, it's the book I wish someone had handed me when I started a company for the first time. And and that book didn't exist. I mean, there, there are a bunch of books about entrepreneurship and and even some great startup advice books, like my favorite is Ben Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. But there's no kind of instruction manual for you when you start your first company. And, and that's really the point behind Startup CEO. And the chapter that you, you picked in particular is an interesting one because essentially that chapter served as the, the blueprint for Startup CXO, the sequel. Mm-hmm. So we can talk about that in a minute. But yeah, the I thought the first time around at Return Path, it was one of the trickiest things. And, and even when I was at MoviePhone and running multiple functions there in a business unit, you're managing people who are much more experienced than you are in what they're doing. If you're a non-technical founder in particular, I know you and I are both non-technical founders and you know, all of a sudden you're managing a CTO and you're managing a head of product. It, it can be very daunting and you can also look, it can go very well, but it can also go very poorly. And if you don't know enough about that function and what makes that function tick and how that function fits with all the other function, the you can wake up and be in, in terrible shape one day without even knowing that it's coming, without seeing that it's coming. And if it's finance, if you don't have those instincts around finance, you can wake up in a big cash problem, which is business threatening. If it's technology and you're a non-technical CEO, you can wake up one day and feel completely held hostage by a technology leader or, or even a more generalist product leader that you feel like you can't get rid of them because they know all this stuff you don't know. So I think one of the things that that first-time CEOs really have to get their arms around are the, are the sort of basics of, of each function. And that was the inspiration for Startup CXO. Let's keep rolling. Let's talk about Startup CXO. I, I was fortunate enough that Matt asked me to write the forward of the book, which was a real honor. And what came to mind to me was, was that idea as a first-time CEO, Matt, I didn't know what I didn't know. You've got, okay, here, here's where I'm knowledgeable. Here are areas I know I don't know. But then the third category is the scariest, which is I, I don't know what I don't know. There's right. so many new horizons to cover. And I feel like this second book, the startup CXO, it's very heavy, by the way. And this is this is a, a field guide through and through, but really takes a deep dive into each functional area of the business to help 
understand the anatomy of what a finance role or what an HR role or what an engineering team needs to be thinking about, needs to be responsible for. Yeah, this was a really fun project uh, to work on. So as I said, it was inspired by Startup CEO by that one chapter, because when you think about the job of being a CEO, yeah, there's a whole section about in Startup CEO on boards and boards, that's a really important part of what you do, but it doesn't consume your day. So you got to get it right, but it's not what you're doing minute in, minute out. And when I thought about that whole book, that one chapter is something that you actually spend all day doing, right? You spend all day managing the different people on your team and orchestrating a leadership team and really felt like you could double click on that and turn it into another book, which is what we did. I'm very fortunate with Startup CXO. My name is on it as the author because you really can only have like so many names on a book as an author, but it is a book of books. And Scott, if you hold up, hold up the side of it again so people can see the side of it, right? So each one of those gray areas is a different section of the book. So it's a book of books. There are literally nine different small books in it. Each one was written by one or two functional experts who had led departments for return. So the finance section is written by Jack Sinclair, who was my co-founder, actually both for Trump Path and Bolster and a career CFO. The sales section was written by Anita Absey, who was my head of sales for 17 years at Return Path. There's a section on marketing, on HR, et cetera, et cetera. And each one of those is not just a very talented functional leader. And yes, they ha- happen to work at Return Path for a few years, but they're also people who are 20 to 30 years into their career who've been leading that function at multiple companies, different industries, different sizes, different stages, and really wanted to tell the story of how to be and scale the, the head of that department. So we put all of that together in, in one book. It is a very long book, as you said. It is a heavy, heavy lift. It's not necessarily meant to be read front to back, although you could read it front to back. In each section, there are chapters uh, that I wrote about how a CEO should think about that function, manage that function. When you know that function isn't going well, how do you engage with it? When do you know, when is it time to hire your first one, et cetera? And there are really, I think, kind of three use cases for the book. One is for the first-time founder CEO who just needs to get a handle on all the things that he or she is managing. And there, you can read one section at a time, right? If you've got questions about what's going on with your marketing effort, or you're trying to figure out what to look for when you're hiring a head of marketing, reading those 40 pages written by Nick and Holly is a really good way to get the overview of marketing. Okay, I got to find someone that knows how to lead demand gen, brand, digital, PR, marketing ops, et cetera. So it's a CEO's field guide. The second use case is really for leadership teams. And if you're the head of uh, sales somewhere, you might benefit from reading the sales section, especially if you're a first-time head of sales. But you'd also really benefit from reading the marketing, from reading the customer success section to understand the handoffs you have on your executive team and how to think empathetically about your colleagues and what they're responsible for doing. And when you give them, so when you throw something over the wall to them, what, what you're throwing it into. And then finally, the, the third use case is for people who are early in their career, who are maybe aspiring executives. And our hope there is that it turns into a good uh, kind of career pathing tool. So if you're early in your career working in a marketing department somewhere and you're running traffic for ads or you're running field marketing and doing events and you wanna be a CMO in five or 10 years, that marketing section will tell you everything that you need to be good at to be a marketing leader. Yeah, that's great, Matt. Those three use cases are really powerful. Understanding each function is so important, and then understanding how they're connected to one another, understanding how they're interrelated, extraordinarily important. How do you go about, or what advice do you have for leaders about managing gray space between functional leaders, gray space between a sales leader and a marketing leader, or other examples that come to mind? 
Yeah, it's tough. And it's so easy for things to fall on the floor when they are sitting in between functions. I think that the there are a couple of things that, that I think we did reasonably well over the years at Return Path on that front. Although I don't know that we, I don't know that we always got it. One is periodically we would just do it, just do an inventory of everything that everyone was doing and where it was assigned. And some people call that like a racy analysis. I forget what that even stands for. Uh, responsible, accountable, uh, consulted or informed. And if you do an analysis of everything that's happening in the organization and who owns it, you figure out pretty quickly which things don't have owners or which things have two owners. <laughs> You're right. Uh, and either one of those is a problem. The, the second thing, I, I always found that there were certain functions that were, we used to call them glue functions or tweener functions, where they helped hold two different teams together and fill in the cracks between them. And my favorite example of that is always product marketing, although sales operations is probably there as well. Those functions that really could be in department A or department B because they're doing so much collaborative work. So those, be, those people who run those tweener functions, who are usually not C-level people, right? Those are director level people or VP level people, those people become absolutely essential to the to, to a, a high functioning organization. And the way we ended up incorporating those people into our kind of management structure at Return Path, it took us a long time to get to this place, but the last two or three years, I felt like this was something we got, was we had our executive team, which was, I don't know, 12 people or 13 people or something, most of whom reported to me, but, but probably not all of them. And then we we created three kind of subgroups of the executive team, one for go-to-market, one for product, and one for corporate. And on those subgroups, it was some of the executive members, and then it was a couple of those glue people in the organization. Mm -hmm. And there were executive team members who sat on two of those. I think the head of marketing was probably on both go-to-market and on product, for example, but it was like the head of product marketing that sat on both that really made sure that nothing fell between the cracks. And we, we had that across product and corporate, go-to-market and corporate and product and go-to-market. Yeah, that's really good, Matt. I like the identification of where there's no owner or maybe even more troubling where there's two owners. I saw a funny tweet recently that said uh, a dog with two owners always goes hungry or kind of something to that effect. I thought, I thought it was pretty good. The, the line I have on that, which actually comes from my boss at Movie Phone, and I, I don't even think it was him. I think it was his mentor used to say two bosses is better than a vacation. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. So we've got some really good questions coming in. Thank you. Why don't we knock a couple of them out? The first one, Cracks me up. Scott, are you related to Jack Dorsey? And uh, the answer, no, no relation there. Next one, Matt, great session thus far. Is there a way to re reach Matt after the event with questions? Sure. Matt at bolster.com. Okay. All right. Super. Yeah. This third one's really a timely topic from uh, Dave Leahy. What are you seeing with the adoption of the COO role? Yeah, COO is, is a really interesting role. And the in Startup CXO, right, there are a whole bunch of pages about finance and HR and sales and marketing. The COO section is two pages. And the reason the COO section is two pages long, and we really struggled with coming up with an outline for it, because there are, I don't think there are any two COO jobs that are the same job description. So what we did in that very small section of the book is we outlined the types of COOs there are. And yes, Rick, it might be a bunch of stuff and processes nobody else wants to do. That's actually one of the types of COO. And there, there are, I, I don't know if this is exhaustive, but there are the three different types that we outline, I think, if I'm getting it right, here we go. It's literally a two-page chapter. One, one flavor of COO is basically head of operations, right? Head of internal, like internal operate. There's one flavor, which is, which you find more in media companies, which is basically the head of revenue that's called a COO, or sometimes it's even a president. And then there's the, the COOs that are 
paired with a brilliant visionary CEO and the COO kind of run. That doesn't mean the CEO is a figurehead. The CEO might also have finance reporting to, to them, maybe legal, but the COO is really responsible for a very broad swath of the company. So whether you're running operations or revenue functions or list of things that nobody else wants to do there, I don't think there's a, a consistent description for it. So I don't know that I would even say there's been a rise in COOs lately. Maybe there hasn't, but I don't think it's all been the same kind. Yeah, no, I think that's right. There are, there are some amazing questions rolling in. Uh, this one from, from Mike and Vincent, I think kind of builds on, on the topic we were just covering around functional leadership. In addition to learning enough about the underlying function, do you have a particular method to the questions you ask each functional leader to help you make decisions or, or help you understand really what's happening within that given area of the business? Yeah, I mean, there are certainly things that, that you have to do. And again, you're not the expert on it, but you have to help guide and, and shape decisions. I think there some of it is asking questions about alignment to vision and alignment to mission and alignment to plan, right? Is what you're doing in line with what we all agreed we were going to be doing as an organization? There are always questions that, that you ask in skip level meetings. So not when you're meeting with your CXO, but when you're meeting with that person's direct reports and not just about like, how's the CXO doing or how are things going, but what's keeping you up at night? And that tends to be a really good way of finding out what's going on in the organization. The CMO's number one priority might be XYZ or number two, one concern might be X, Y, Z. But then when you go to the person who's running digital and they say, I'm really worried the website's going to collapse. <laughs> and that hasn't made it to the CMO's radar screen yet. It, it gives you an opportunity to then go back and ask some additional questions. So I don't know that there's a question or formula, but I, I think the skip level is a good part of it. And alignment to mission, vision, and plan is, is another important part. Okay, that's good. This might be an interesting bridge, Matt, to you sharing a little more about your Colorado experience. Or so talk about getting thrust into a brand new situation where you had a lot to learn and had to move quickly. I'd love it if you'd share maybe a bit of that experience you had a year ago. Yeah, that was really interesting. It was right before we started Bolster. And I had the opportunity to go out to Colorado where I'm, I'm not from Colorado, but Return Path had a very large office there as, and Bolster is uh, at least half there as well. So spent a lot of time there over the years. And the governor, Jared Polis, who's actually a tech guy, a lot of people don't know, he was one of the founders of Techstars. And before that, he was one of the founders of ProFlowers and a Blue Mountain Arts. So he's you know been around the um, internet forever, was then a congressman and then governor. It's a very entrepreneurial person. And in the kind of February of 2020 timeframe and first few days of March, when there was so much uncertainty and crisis and like, are we headed toward a lockdown? Is this thing a plague? What's going on? He was trying to manage everything himself in managing the machinery of state government. And he reached out to Brad Feld, um, who's a very close friend of his and a very close friend of mine, a longtime board member, colleague of both of us, and said, you know, hey, Brad, I, I'm I think we need to start some organization that has one foot in the state government and one foot outside the state government to really help manage and stand up some of the response efforts to COVID because people in state government are, are extraordinarily talented, but they tend to be very focused on the thing that they're responsible for doing. And he said, he was very visionary. He said, I think this pandemic is going to require response that cuts across everything. And he basically said, look, right now I'm trying to do that, but I can't do that. Are there any entrepreneurs who would be really good at coming in and like cutting through clutter and trying to stand something up really quickly? And because I was between things, I think Brad said, yeah, actually, you know, a guy not from Colorado, but we can get him to come out here and do some work. So I wasn't there very long. I think it was there for three weeks. And hmm. uh, the probably the most important thing I did was find the person to take the ball and, and run with it. And she was there doing that job for 12 months or 18 months afterwards. So I can't take credit for much of anything other than helping to get it going. And really interesting experience of coming in 
not really knowing much about state government. Nobody knew much about the pandemic. So at least I wasn't behind on that front. But, you know, having, you know, reasonably good entrepreneurial skills and problem solving skills. So the governor, uh, I showed up, he gave me two in, insanely talented people from state government. And he said, like, these two people will will make sure that everything gets done. And we like we worked together, as I said, for two or three weeks. And I still have a big smile on my face when I think about them. I just loved working with them. And together within a span of six days, we worked uh, in partnership with a whole bunch of people and functional departments in the government, and then in partnership with Brad on the private sector and a bunch of other leaders in the private sector, this guy, Noel Ginsberg, who is a prominent manufacturing executive in Colorado, Tim Miller, a friend of mine and Brad's who had built and scaled rally software in the Denver area. And then of course, Kyle and Casey, these uh, team members from the state government, within six days, we stood up an organization that was, I, I think, 200 or 250 people. It had uh, a mission, it had a vision, it was divided into six work streams. Each one of those had mission, vision, and OKRs. We knew who was going to be in it. We knew where money was coming from and started digging in on some of these thorny problems at the moment. If you think back to March 12th or March 15th of 2020, hey, how are we going to get testing? No one can find tests. No one can find reagents for the tests. We need to expand the state lab capacity okay, now let's move on from testing and let's talk about how we're going to influence social policy and social distancing. Are we going to build an app to help track things, et cetera? So it was very much a team sport. Like I said, I I was mostly there to help get the thing stood up and organized and then hired this uh, tremendous woman, Sarah Thunberg, who came in and replaced me. But but boy, was that, that was like trial by fire. Yeah, what an incredible experience, Matt. And it also took a lot of courage, I think, for you to say goodbye to your family for three weeks, go hop in an airplane in the early days of COVID with all the fear of traveling and being around people and all the unknowns and, and really step in and stand up an organization. It, it strikes me that there's quite a parallel to starting a new company. And that's what you did next with Bolster. And we, we probably should not make too deeply into the program today without talking Bolster. So why don't I turn it over to you perhaps to talk a little bit about the founding story and what, what the first year of Bolster's life has been like. And I think most notably, Matt has an incredible set of co-founders that's very unique. So I hope you hit on that as part of the story as well. Yeah, the the, the founding story was quite fun, as you know, since you're a prominent part of it. And and we do have, there are eight of us as co-founders, which it was <laughs> possible it's a record. No one's ever come to me and said that they know a company that had nine or 10 or some greater number. And I'm super fortunate to be working with this, this crew as partners in this. We, all of us worked together at Return Path on the senior team there for many years. Some, some of us 20 years. I think the rookie on the team is five or six or seven years. And most of the groups 10 to 12 years together. And when we left return path after the sale of the company, we were doing all kinds of things. Most of us were doing some consulting work. A bunch of us were doing interim interim executive jobs at some different places. We were really interested in, in working together and in doing something else together. And we sat down and really worked on three totally different but interconnected business plans for things that were in and around leadership talent, and in and around the startup ecosystem. And I'd spent a lot of time mentoring other CEOs, either through my blog or the book or the venture portfolios that um, Return Path was in or Techstars over the years. And most of my co-founders had done the same. You know, when you run a business for 20 years, all of a sudden at some point, you're like the old person and the experienced person in the room. And you have a lot of opportunities to mentor younger and first-time founders or executives. 
And we liked that. We liked doing that, wanted to do more things like that. We also know that we're you know, good at, at building and scaling a software company. So we had a few different ideas for essentially helping the startup ecosystem scale better. And one of the first uh, people I called as I was trying to think about how to get these off the ground and fund them was you. And actually you interviewing me about this is quite funny. You and I set up a, a, a Zoom meeting. And as I remembered anyway, we, we were trying to figure out, oh, should we do an hour? And I said, yeah, we should probably do more than an hour. There's a lot to cover here. High Alphas would be a tremendous partner for us, right? You guys are all things B2B. All these things we're working on are B2B. We've known each other for 20 years. So I ran through three pitch decks with you. And for these three different ideas, Shift C, Unstoppable, and Venture Acceleration Partners. And I turned off my screen share. And as I remember it, you can correct me if I'm wrong. You said, you know what? I'm going to turn my screen share on because I want to share an idea with you. And your firm, High Alpha, out of the studio, had been working with Silicon Valley Bank as a corporate partner and had taken a concept through research and ideation and through a sprint week that you were calling In Between, which was a talent marketplace for the startup ecosystem. And I think when, when I finished seeing that pitch, you turned off the screen share. And I think you and I both said, hey, we got to figure out how to put, you know, this idea with your ideas, with your team, with our investment, with Silicon Valley Bank's investment, with the venture capitalists who are behind Return Path who wanted to invest in our businesses. Let's go do something uh, meaningful together. And it was not very long from that meeting until we started Bolster. And actually that was the window of time where I was out in Colorado doing that, trying to get all this paperwork together at a distance. So that was the founding story. The business itself to tie all those threads together is I think a business that's going to be very impactful for how startups scale. And what we'd like to say Bolster does is it helps a startup CEO scale their team, scale themselves, and scale their board. So the, the center piece of Bolster is an online marketplace for executive talent that wants to work in and around startups and scale. So it's a two-sided marketplace. It works just like Airbnb. One side of it is CEOs of startups and scale-ups. The other side of it is executives. Both sides join. You have to join, but you join for free and it doesn't take very long. You have to fill out a, fill out a profile and do some things that look a little bit like LinkedIn. So we know who you are and what you're great at and what you want to do. And CEOs connect with talent in the Bolster marketplace and hire that talent to do a few different things. One thing is interim and fractional executive roles. One thing is mentor or coach roles. And then one thing is independent board of director roles. So that's what Bolster does. There's more to it than that. It's a, a model that's still evolving every, but that's what we've been doing now for uh, 16 or 17 months. And I think we're off to a pretty good start. I think this week we're going to make our hundredth placement, which for a company in the search space, I guess we're in the search space, that's really been open for business for nine months. We're pretty proud of that. And we're adding a ton of members, a ton of clients, and a ton of searches every day. Yeah, it's been fun having a seat at the table, Matt, watching you operate, build the team, build the product. And those of you that haven't checked out Bolster, please do. The product and the tech is really coming along. It's impressive. And um, just the velocity across the marketplace is increasing every day. There are a lot of really cool opportunities out there. It's fun when you're you know, an entrepreneur, you're building a company, you have your eyes open around opportunity. And I think one opportunity that you just touched on is boards, bringing independence onto boards, having more of an eye toward diversity, equity, and inclusion, helping CEOs and organizations build diverse boards that can help them and help the company grow. And you have a lot of expertise here, Matt, and being on your board, you're outstanding at running a board. And, and even looking back at return path, you knew you had Fred Wilson and Brad Feld and some really iconic investors on your board for 20 years, which is really incredible. So I think you've got a lot of wisdom to share around board management. And I'd love it if you'd maybe share your philosophy around assembling a board and the importance of independence 
because that's controversial in early stages of, of company development. And then just what you do to get the most out of your board in meeting, off meeting, in cycle, off cycle, advice you might have to others. Yeah. Constructing a board is is interesting. And I, I had never given it much thought beyond my own board until we started Bolster and decided that board searches was going to be a significant part of what we do. One of the things that we did uh, early on is a fairly thorough research project, a few hundred startups that were clients of ours, just trying to understand what private company boards look like, who's on them, how many VCs, how many founders, how many independent, how are independents compensated? What's the diversity look like? And I was shocked by many things that we learned out of that. I wasn't really shocked that boards are not particularly diverse. I think everybody knew that. But the thing that really shocked me, if I had to point to one number, was that two-thirds of the companies in our uh, data set had zero independent directors. Mm, wow. Only one-third had any independents. And even of the Series C and D companies, they didn't all have independents. Most of them did there. But it was like 60 65% of Series C and D companies and a bunch of them were still boards completely made up of founders and, and at that stage, probably private equity people too. Mm-hmm. And the way I had always built my board at Return Path, which I was very proud of in all dimensions except one, which was it was not a diverse board. It was literally a board of seven white men. And if I had to do it over again, I would have done that differently. Although I wouldn't have traded out any of the people I had. I would have just had a bigger board because I, I loved everyone that was on the board. But what I've started evangelizing to our clients in terms of how they think about building a board from, I can talk about this sort of from three perspectives. One is the composition of the board. And what I'm just trying to tell everyone is think about it as the rule of ones. And the rule of ones is only one founder on the board. And then for every one investor, and then to go with that, if we wanted to add another one, it would be that you should put an independent on your board on day one. It's never too early to add independent thinking and independent advice to the strategic sounding board that you have in your board of directors. But I think it's that that those other things about really only having one founder on the board, that doesn't mean co-founders can't have plenty of rights. It doesn't mean they can't be at board meetings. It doesn't mean they can't have a voice. It doesn't mean they can have specific voting privileges if you want. But a board of directors is a really small and taking up a seat with someone who's already full-time in the business besides the CEO is a waste of a seat. And pairing up one, every investor you add, add another independent just keeps the board in balance. So that's a little bit about how we think about constructing boards Diversity, you don't, you can't choose who you are. You, you can choose who your investors are, but the investor landscape is still dominated by not particularly diverse board members. Independent director is really your biggest opportunity to add very talented executives to your board with a lot of diversity of everything, diversity of thought, diversity of experience, diversity of demographically as well. And those things frequently go together. And the main thing that you have to get your head around as a CEO to do that is you pretty much have to abandon not entirely, but you pretty much have to abandon the requirement that you are only going to put someone on your board who is an experienced board member and multi-time CEO. Yeah. So that's usually the requirement people have for an independent director, not always. And that pool of talent is amazing, but not when you think about constructing your board a little bit differently and you think, all right, what skill set is missing from my management team and board? What industry experience is missing? What introductions do I need? Who's done something like this before? You really open up the funnel tremendously to not just 2x the the population, but like 10x the population and can really build a, a very powerful and diverse board from day one. That's what we're doing with our own board at Bolster, which I think going very well so far. So that's the long answer to, I think, one part of your question, but- No, that's great. That's great, man. I agree completely. There's so many extraordinarily talented people who are really eager to serve on boards of early stage companies, startup scale-ups, and they have so much wisdom and expertise to share. 
I've been on a number of boards recently where we've had an independent who is the customer, the voice of the customer. So valuable and often lacking. And I, I mean, I've been around so many board meetings where collectively we're guessing what the customer really wants or cares about. Why not have the customer persona on the board, a great way to bring another voice uh, into the mix, which is so good. Let's talk a moment about how to interview prospective board members. You and I are going through this right now, and you are extraordinarily thorough. And I think maybe sharing your process could be insightful. Not only that, Scott, I think we have a call as soon as this ends (laughs) about the process where, yeah, interviewing board members, so important. You have to be so thorough about it. You really have to get to know people. It sounds like you're hiring a senior executive in in some respects. So the process that that I've used over the years is is to go through a few steps. Take as a CEO, I take the the lead role in it. I don't outsource it to HR. I don't outsource it to, to a search firm. So I do the first round myself and I probably usually screen eight to 10 people. I use that as an opportunity to meet eight to 10 awesome people who, you know, especially early in my career, I I felt, oh my God, I have no right to call on this. This person is way more senior than I am, but that it's a calling card, right? I'm, I'm looking for a board member for my company, board of directors. Are you interested in the conversation? It gets you in to see some great people. So I always do round one myself. My only tip around the first round is I always record a 15 or 20 minute corporate overview presentation. Just do a Zoom recording of me doing the corporate deck and I send it to them ahead of time so we don't have to chew up half the meeting with me telling them what the business is. And that's also a good test to make sure they are doing their homework before they show up. Then typically I'll try to narrow down the field to two or three. I'll then have my other board members interview them and a panel of execs or co-founders interview them. I will spend a a multi-hour meeting in person with each of those. And then usually a second one of those with whoever the finalist is. And then the, the last part of the process is always an audition. And I'm a big believer in having people audition for any job. If you have someone you know, coming in for an engineering job, have them write some code. If you have someone coming in for a sales job, have them do a pitch. And the only way to audition a, a board member is to have them come to a board meeting. So we did that many times over the years at Return Path. We've done it at Bolster. We're about to do it again at our next Bolster board meeting. And you have to invest the time as the CEO to prepare the person for the board meeting. So they're on as close to equal footing as they can be with people who are actually on the board. And you do have to tell them like, A, this is part of the interview process. You are not on the board yet, but B, you're not observing this meeting. You're here to participate in this meeting as if you were on the board. And, and then you see how it goes. And uh, Scott, you and I know when we had Christina Miller, who's our one independent so far show up for her audition, she was a, a star contributor to that board meeting. And uh, we were so excited to welcome her onto the board after that. But I've had uh, times where I've bounced someone out of the process that far along mm. after the audition. Because even after I got them ready for the meeting and said, it's so important that you're in the meeting, they didn't open their mouth. And, and I'd say to them afterwards, this happened twice. Afterwards, hey, what happened? Like, I thought you would give your point of view about that topic and that topic. Oh, I didn't really feel right. Okay, but I told you that was part of the process. Like, we needed to hear what you had to say about things. Anyway, so that's- Oh, uh, that's so good, that's Matt. That, that audition concept is powerful for hiring at all levels. And the very last thing that I got to talk about with board interviewing process is- the way you reject candidates is incredibly important. And first of all, the baseline is you have to you have to remember to go back to everyone you talk to and say, no, thank you. But anyone that you spend material time with, right? You've met with them in person more than once. You've had them meet with other people on your board. If they've spent five hours or more on the process, you want them to get the most gracious no thank you of their life. Because that's someone who's a future board member it's a friend and ambassador to the, it's likely someone, you know, pretty senior somewhere and hyper-connected. So whatever your flavor of the most gracious, no thank you is, do it. Handwritten letter, bottle of wine, 
basket of goodies, a swag from your company, all of the above. Uh, so, so important. It's so good. One, one more question is on boards. You do something after a board meeting that I've never seen, uh, never seen uh, be done before. And it's so effective. And hopefully you know what I'm talking about. I thought you might share that little tidbit of advice. Yeah, sure. I know we're tight on time. I'll do that. And I'll do two other super quick ones about board management. So I do a like a three-question survey by Google Form right after the board meeting. This was not my idea. This was Fred Wilson's idea. I didn't do it at Return Path and I love doing it. And it's just, did you get what you wanted to get out of the meeting? What's going well at the company? What's not going well out of the company? Any other questions? It takes people three minutes to fill out, but you get that kind of instant pulse on like how the meeting went, which is great. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I would say the two other most important things that, that I think we do well with our board are the materials are heavy on looking backward, right? What happened last quarter and light on, hey, here are discussion topics, but the meeting is the reverse, yeah. right? The meeting is very little about what happened. Assume people read the materials. What you really want to do is dig into a couple topics. And Scott uh, Weiss, my longtime board member I mentioned earlier, used to have this great saying, which is that um, boards consume any food you put in front of them. <laughs> so um, they can be directed in a meeting. If you want to talk about you know, these two or three topics, do not spend the whole meeting talking about accounting. You can talk about accounting some other time. Anyway, we'll uh, leave it there. Okay. Awesome. Wonderful note to end on. Matt, thank you so much. Really inspiring and lots of really tangible advice for all of our uh, entrepreneurs and tech leaders in the audience. And to those of you who spent the last hour with us, uh, thank you. Uh, Hope you enjoy the rest of the afternoon. Have a wonderful summer and uh, we'll be in touch soon. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much, Scott. This episode is brought to you by Bolster. Leadership and board roles are mission critical to the success of any business, yet they're the hardest roles to fill. Bolster connects high growth companies with trusted and flexible executive talent, matching executives with startup and scale up CEOs based on each company's unique needs and each executive's unique experience. Quickly and cost effectively fill an executive consulting or board role by visiting bolster.com. That's B-O-L-S-T-E-R dot com. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. Speaker Series Rewind is brought to you by High Alpha, a venture studio that designs and builds B2B SaaS companies. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts wherever you listen. You can also subscribe or find additional content at highalpha.com slash podcast. We'd really appreciate any reviews and it'll help us reach more awesome people like you. Catch you next time.